Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Uh, we're, we're wrapping up legacy here today. We've been talking about for the last several weeks here in October the importance of leaving behind a spiritual legacy, a legacy that impacts generations uh, of, of folks. And we started off the first week with our missions panel. We had four missionaries up here on the stage, and we we're talking about the importance of missions work. And I mean, you can't talk about leaving behind a spiritual legacy if we don't talk missions. You got to have missions in the picture and what folks are doing overseas. And everywhere our missionaries go, they are bringing the hope and the message of Christ and impacting generations of folks, and so we spent time doing that. Then the second week, we learned about how we live not just once, we actually live twice. You live twice in this in this world, man. You have one life right here and now in this in this world, but another life to come in eternity, right? We actually are uh, eternal beings. We're not finite. We do live forever, and uh, our, our life on earth is really pretty short. We put, we put all our eggs in this basket that's pretty you know small compared to the eternal life that we'll have, so we talked about how, hey, look, your works don't save you, or you're only saved by grace through faith in Christ. But as a Christian, your works do determine your reward. And Paul talks a lot about that in one of his letters to the Corinthians. We spent some time breaking that down. How your works, what you do with this life, what you do with the gifts God's given you, and the, and, and, and the resources and the things that God's blessed you with, it does matter for eternity. It does have a mark that it leaves. And then we, we, we began to talk about uh, having the right mind the following week? Do you have a scarcity mindset or an abundant mindset? There's a difference. If you're going to leave behind a spiritual legacy, you got to have one of abundance, not scarcity. And so we began to talk about how, hey, it's important that you understand you should not diminish what you have because what you have, though it might seem small to you, God can use that for his glory. He can take what seems insignificant and do the extravagant. And, and we talked about how we got to keep the faith because as you keep the faith, that abundance follows your faith. That abundant mindset and faith go hand in hand. And that led us to last week, we talked about generosity and the importance of, of living a generous life. We, we titled it grace giving. And we talked about how it's important for us to live a life of generosity with our time, our talent, our treasure, all that we have to give back to the Lord. We need to do that so that we can live generous lives and leave behind an important spiritual legacy that lasts for eternity. Okay? And we, we live a generous life when we're grateful. We live a generous life, man, when, when we begin to love people as God loves them, when we begin to fall deeper in love with Christ. All those elements are important that contribute to the generous life that we live uh, for, for the Lord. And, and we talked about the importance of this as well, that, that generosity leads and your heart follows. You know, you say, Pastor, I want to be generous in this area or that area. And Okay, great. Here's the thing. If you will change some, some habits in your life, whether it's serving or giving or, or you know, prayer, whatever it is, if you will take an area that you feel I've got to get more generous at and begin to put time, talent, treasure, gifts, whatever, into that area and be generous with what you have, your heart will follow, okay? You will notice change over the course of your life. Generosity leads, your heart follows. 
are wrapping up today with a little bit of a twist, though. We're not going to talk about scarcity, abundance, or generosity. We're not going to talk about those types of things here today. In fact, what I want to do this morning is I want to take us to the final night uh, that the most generous person spent. There's not a legacy. We talk about spiritual legacy. There's not a legacy like the one that Christ left for us. How can we talk about leaving behind a spiritual legacy and not talk about Jesus? You have to talk about Christ, right? He's got to come into the picture. And so I want to spend some time talking about the legacy that Jesus left. When we think about Christ's legacy and what he left for us, all kinds of images pop up. You might think about miracles. You might think about you know, you know, uh, Jesus walking on water. But, but typically what a lot of folks think of, they think of the cross. They think of the blood, the resurrection, the empty tomb. All that, That's the most important thing about Christ, right? I mean, even folks who aren't Christians, if they hear the term Jesus, generally they're thinking something to that element. Perhaps it's the cross that comes to mind. They're thinking something around there because that, that's what Christ is known for. That's his legacy, his death and resurrection, his sacrifice for us. And we commemorate that through communion. And we take communion as a way to commemorate what Jesus did for us on the cross. And some of you here this morning, man, you, you're, you're, you know communion inside and out. You understand it and why we take it. But I, there's a lot of us in the room, I think, that maybe not, we don't fully understand, perhaps, communion and why we do it. Maybe you're here and you don't understand communion at all. You're kind of on the fence. You, you're, this is kind of new to you, which is great. But I want to focus on the why. Because so often a church will do things, and we'll just do them because we've always done that. I've always, I've always, you know, I grew up as a kid. We took communion like, you know, every, every six weeks or whatever it was, and we just kind of did it. It was one of those things you did. Now, they, and they explained us the body and blood of Christ. I said, okay, I got that, but like, why am I doing it? And, and what I want to impart to you today is I, I want to impart to you the why. Why do we commemorate communion? Why do we celebrate this? Because if you can understand why, then you can fully understand the legacy that Christ has left for us. I think it will also change your walk. It will change how you relate to Jesus as well. So we're going to spend some time breaking that down today. I'm going to tell you Matthew 26, verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people and is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in less than 24 hours from now, Christ will be dead. His body is going to be taken down from the cross. Uh, he's going to be placed in a tomb. Three days later, he'll rise again. Uh, but this night is special. This final night is incredibly special for Jesus, for his followers together. They're celebrating the Passover. And, and perhaps you're here, you know the Passover, but maybe you don't. And so if you're here this morning and you're not sure what the Passover is, let me just explain to you very quickly. The Passover marks the celebration of God 
freeing the people of Israel from their slavery. They were enslaved in Egypt for, for hundreds of years, and, and God sets them free. Now, he uses a man named Moses to bring ten plagues to the Egyptians as a result of their refusal to let Israel go free. On the night of the tenth plague, they were to take a lamb, they were to kill it, roast it, and eat it, and smear the blood over the doorposts of their homes. Okay, That way, uh, when the Lord came by, the oldest son would be spared. They would, you know, the Lord would not take the oldest son's life. Uh, but the Egyptians did not do this. And so you say, wait a minute, pastor, they have to smear blood to protect. How come the Egyptians didn't do it? Didn't Moses warn them? Well, Moses had given them nine different warnings at this point. So before we kind of jump on the plane of, well, that's not fair, there were nine different warnings, nine different plagues that had preceded this moment to tell Pharaoh in Egypt, God says, let them go, let them go. And actually, if you read the story towards the last few plagues, even when Pharaoh said no, you would read about some of the Egyptians. They, they, they got the message. And so, like, for instance, when the plague of hail came, you know what they did? They took their servants inside, their livestock inside, because they were afraid of God. They didn't lose people and animals as other Egyptians did. So some Egyptians kind of got that message. But a lot of them, they, they, they listened to Pharaoh. They resisted. And, and so the Lord had said, listen, you got to let them go. There's nine different plagues, nine different warning signs for you. I'm giving you chances to let these guys go here. And each attack, by the way, each plague was an attack by God on a different Egyptian deity. I don't know if you knew that or not. But every plague attacks an Egyptian god or goddess, including Pharaoh himself, who thought of himself as an actual god, a, a living god. And so what is the message the Lord is sending? He's sending this important message right here. I want everyone to know, the Egyptians, the people of Israel, Pharaoh, you need to know this. There's one God, and I'm it. There's one God. Nothing, nobody else and nothing else can stand up against me. I'm the most powerful. I know what I'm doing. Listen to me. Right? Nine different plagues, nine different warnings. Still Pharaoh resisted. And so the Lord comes through, and, and the firstborn of the Egyptians, even down to the livestock, donkeys, cattle, horses, firstborn, they're all killed, including Pharaoh. Pharaoh loses his son, the heir to the throne. And it's at that moment where Pharaoh says, get out. Get out and don't come back. Now, it's not saying, hey, get out at 9 o'clock in the morning. and No, get out now. Get out and leave. So what happens is when they're eating this meal, they're ready. Moses tells the people, Eat this meal with your staff in your hand, your sandals on, have your bags, have everything together, including the bread. Bake your bread with, without leaven, right? Break it unleavened bread. The reason for that is you got a long journey ahead, okay? In the middle of the night, Israel takes off and they leave Egypt. They're free. They call it Passover because the Lord passed over the homes of those who had the blood painted on the doorposts, okay? So you fast forward to the first century, 80, 30 or so, and we're at Matthew 26. And this is what Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. They're celebrating this important moment, that Israel was set free, that Israel was forever changed. Now up to this point, every Passover had been the same. It had been the same stuff, same ritual, same everything. Until now. Tonight's going to be different. It's going to be different tonight. Tonight, Christ will institute a change that will turn the world upside down, inside out forever. 
So Passover has 15 parts to it. And the reason it has 15 parts is they symbolize the 15 steps Levites would stand on heading up into the temple during moments of worship, all right? And the major elements in the Passover meal, you have things like the bitter herbs, which represent the bitterness of slavery. You have the four questions about Passover that a child would normally ask, the most infamous being, you know, why is this night uh, different from all the other nights? And you kind of, that leads into the Exodus story and the retelling. You have the, the four cups of wine. We'll talk about those here in a little bit. And, and then you have, you have the matzah bread right here. We'll talk about that here in a little bit as well. You have the matzah bread that you have, another major part of the Passover story and, and, and meal. The bitter herbs would be explained first or dipped in the salt water. The Passover story is told. After breaking the matzah bread, it's, 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 that's what we're going to focus on here today. Uh, after breaking the matzah bread, then, then Jesus is going to say something that's going to change everything going forward. So when the meal got to this step, Jesus would have held up the matzah bread. It looks like this. Now, it looks like nothing like what you would have seen in the movies, right? So you look at this bread right here. It looks like a giant cracker, okay? Now, we're mostly Gentiles in here, so we, we did not, you know, we're not Jewish people for the most part, so we don't, we don't eat this very much. But it, yeah, it's, it's a cracker. It's very thin. It's hard, okay? In the movies, especially The Passion of the Christ, a lot of us have seen that, there's this important scene where they get to the Last Supper. He pulls a cloth off, and there's a steaming hot bread, but it looks like pita bread. And, and that's, that's not unleavened bread. They wouldn't have had that as part of the Passover meal. They would have had this square matzah, this giant cracker right here. Okay, this is what they would have had as part of the meal. And so Jesus would have said a traditional important prayer, which would have gone something like this. He would have said, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And generally, you'd break the bread after that prayer. But Jesus does something entirely different right here, which would have caught people by surprise. Remember, these guys celebrated Passover that he's with their whole lives. Every person in the room, they know what you're supposed to say, when you're supposed to say it, what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to, this is a part of their lives. They know what's happening here. And so when Jesus says, take this and eat it, for this is my body, it threw everybody off. I know you don't read it in scripture, but I promise you, they're looking around. What did he just say? Thomas, come here. Did he just say that? Yeah, I think he did. I think he just, what, what, is it, what does he mean by that? I mean, you know that's happening as he's saying that, because this is not how it's supposed to go. And then he would have broken the bread. Now, matzah is really important because it's bread in its purest form. It's just flour and water. There's no oil. There's no salt. There's no vinegar. There's, there's, there's no sugar, no yeast. There's no, it's just water, flour. That's it. That's all it is. The disciples knew that. Jesus knew that. And so when he says, this is my body, what he is saying, in essence, is this. I'm, I'm pure. I'm the purest form of humanity, right? As this bread is pure, purest form, flour and water, so am I. I'm the purest form of humanity without sin. No sin in my life. I'm free from that. This is crucial if you're going to understand what Christ does next. And just kind of a side note for you. Uh, when I look at this, and it's hard not to when you look at matzah bread. Let me flip it on this side real quick, too, for you to see it. It's hard not to look at this, because if you're holding it in person real, real up close, you'll notice there are stripes that run down the bread, and there are holes interspersed all throughout the bread. And every time I look at it, 
Now, I'm not saying Jesus saw this business, but I'm saying I see it. This is, I, can't, I can't escape this. Every time I look at it, I'm reminded of Isaiah 53.5. What does that say? It says this, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment okay, of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, right, we're healed. There's healing in Christ. So he says a prayer. He thanks God for the bread. He adds, take this and eat it, for this is my body. Then he would have broken the bread. Now, he didn't break the bread like that. He, He would have had the bread in his palm and slapped it like this. And the pieces would have fallen into the dish, okay? And then he would have passed it around. So it probably looked something like this, okay? So this is prayer. All right, let me just put it up here for you so you maybe see it a little better. He has a prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he passes the pieces around, and you have these pieces of bread. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that stays in my head. If I'm one of the disciples there, and I'm watching that happen, that, that imagery is staying with me. Imagine being in the room. You've heard this prayer your entire life, right? You've seen the bread broken. You've seen it fall in the dish. But you've never heard somebody say, this is, this is my body which is broken for you. You've never heard somebody say that before. And, and, and years later, as they're reflecting on this night, and they're participating in future Passover seders, because I don't think we fully understand. Sometimes we think Christianity is this white European religion. It's Jewish. We got Jewish roots. And as they're, as they're taking Passover seders in the future, and they're he- he- in together with this, this scene had to have been etched in their minds, and it had to become one of the most powerful memories they shared with others. And it became a powerful scene for all the folks who were present, that Jesus' body was beaten and crushed, just like, just like these pieces of bread were crushed. had to stay with them the rest of their lives. Now the next important change that Christ brings concerns the, the cup of wine, okay? Now, there's four cups of wine in Passover, and they represent four different steps that you would take in, in the meal. And they, they're associated with different elements of the meal as well. So the first cup of wine you drink is the Kaddish, which is the blessing that you recite at the start of the Passover meal. Then the second cup of wine is associated with the retelling of the Passover story in the Exodus. Then you have the third cup of wine, which is the cup of blessing. You have that after the blessing of, of the meal. Then the fourth cup is after the blessing in the meal. You would take this fourth cup and sing a Hallel, a hymn, okay? A Jewish song of prayer and praise. You're singing that. Matthew 26, 30 says what? That Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn. They sang a Hallel. Then they left and went to the Mount of Olives. Now each one of these cups represents four expressions of deliverance promised by God to the people of Israel. They are what the four steps, we say at Radiant Church, we have four steps we want you to take through your spiritual journey. This is what our four steps are based on and where they come from. The four I will statements. Back uh, a couple years ago, we did a teaching series called Four Cups. We'll, we'll probably do it again here in the near future. And we talk about each one of these cups in detail and how it relates to God's plan for your life and the plan for Israel. And so uh, these cups were important. They come from Exodus chapter 6. So Exodus 6, verse number 6 says this. Therefore, say the people of Israel, this is God speaking to Moses here. 
I am the Lord, and I will free you from your oppression. First I will statement. I will free you from your oppression. That's the first couple line. For us, it's our first step. Know God. What's God doing? I'm getting the people out of, out of Egypt. I'm not doing anything else. I'm not telling them who I am. I'm not doing... I just want them to get out. I'm getting them out. And, I, and the first step of salvation is saying yes to Jesus. You know, all the other stuff that we kind of focus on and sometimes fight about, that's not important. That comes later. The most important thing is yes to Christ. That's why it's the first step. Know God. And I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. Number two, second I will statement, second cup. For us at Radiant Church, it's find freedom. Why? All the Egyptians had known was slavery. 400 years. They, they were slaves. Their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-grandparents. I mean, they were, they, they were slaves. That's all they had known. They had known Egyptian culture and customs. and they, they had known all of that. In fact, some scholars will teach that they did not know much about God at that point. They knew the stories of Abraham. It was passed down, sure. But they didn't really know God in that way until the Exodus. They go to Mount Sinai. They stay there for a year. What does God do? He tells them, hey, here's how you worship me. Here's what you eat. Here's what you don't eat. Here's how you, you, you set your family up. Here's how you praise me. God instructs and what's he doing? He's getting the Egypt out of them and he's putting his heart and soul inside the people of Israel. So once you say yes to God, you got to find freedom where the Lord does a work in your life and the Holy Spirit begins to change you and he begins to get all the junk out of you and put more of a spirit inside. That's the step number two. Number three, I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. Let's discover your purpose for us. It's the third cup, the cup of blessing in the, in the meal. A third I will statement. God has a purpose for your life. You were created on purpose for a purpose. As I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Fourth I will statement, and that is the fourth cup of wine. And for us, it's our fourth step, which is make a difference. When you become God's people, he becomes your God. You're taking that purpose and you're living it out, making an eternal difference, leaving behind a spiritual legacy which impacts folks for generations. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. So the third cup of wine is attached to God's promise to redeem Israel, okay, through his great power. The fourth cup is attached to his promise to make Israel his people. We do not know which cup for certain that Jesus would have drank from, third or fourth. It could really be either way. And before we get done here this morning, I'm going to share with you kind of my thoughts on this, because I actually have a thought that he didn't drink from either one of these two, and maybe one other cup that he drank from. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But it could have been one of those two. And it's very difficult to uh, disassociate the words, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people from these cups of wine, right? These cups at Passover celebrated God's covenant with Israel. Now let me just talk about covenant for a second. I don't want to get too far down this road. But I will, I, will, I, will, I will say this, that the covenant with, with God and Israel at this point in history have been broken. God did not break the covenant. And by the way, as we're going to learn in a couple of weeks, the covenant was not made with Israel and God in a bilateral way. God made it himself 
where he put the onus on himself to, to really keep it. We'll talk about that here in a little while, but, 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 not, but not today. So it's this covenant that Israel fails to keep, and in all throughout the Old Testament, they, they worship other gods, they kill the prophets, they allow sin to really run rampant in their culture. They managed to destroy the covenant that God had made with them entirely on their own. And so what God had done, he said, man, I've, I've had enough. I've had enough. We're going to put a stop to this. There's a prophet named Jeremiah, and Jeremiah comes, and he begins to talk about a new covenant that God is going to bring to his people. And Jeremiah says, this is a different kind of covenant, though. It's not going to be a covenant that's on scrolls or tablets. This is a covenant that God will make where he will write this on people's hearts. In fact, people will know God in a personal way, and God will forgive sin on a permanent basis. Not every, no, this will be a once and for all thing. Jeremiah 31, 31, he says this, The day is coming, says the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And the covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. So in other words, what I made with them at Sinai, this is going to be totally different than that. They broke that covenant. God's word's not mine, right? They broke the covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will uh, not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Some of you may not know it, but there was a time where God did not deal with sin permanently. Under the old covenant Israel failed to, to keep that the Lord mentions here in Jeremiah, the sacrifice was brought to the priest every year for atonement. And the priest would say a prayer, and, you know, it's a bull or a ram. He'd say a prayer. He'd ask you to place your hands in the animal. It's almost a symbolic way of you transferring your sin to the animal instead. And then they would slit the animal's throat and drain the blood into a basin and take that blood and sprinkle it against the altar. What happened there? The animal was killed and suffered the punishment for your sin. God didn't forgive you, but God, his punishment, his wrath was satisfied. If you go back in your notes, for you guys who have your binders and keep notes, if you go back to the summer, we, we were in Romans, and I believe it was Romans chapter 3 we got to. We talked about this word called propitiation, where Jesus satisfied the wrath, the punishment, once and for all for our sin. Go back and read those notes. It connects right here to what we're talking about here today. And so the animal dies, and God's wrath is appeased for that year. But you've got to do it again next year. Otherwise, you fall under the same wrath and judgment. And so this appeasement meant that sin was not dealt with once and for all. There was no finality to that. You were just satisfying the wrath of judgment for a temporary basis. But now everything's going to change because Jesus is going to tell his disciples there's a new covenant that God is going to make that he promised long ago. And Jesus is saying, I'm the centerpiece of it. I'm it. I'm going to be the center of this covenant. It's his blood which is perfect. His blood which is pure, is free from sin, which will be offered instead of the blood of an animal. And it's necessary to forgive sins once and for all in order for God's wrath to be satisfied. And so no longer would you need to offer sacrifices because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. So we don't do that today. We don't bring in a red heifer 
in the auditorium. If you do that, you can keep him, but he's going to be chilly later on. Like, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do something with the heifer, but we're not going to sacrifice the heifer because God's already satisfied that part of the wrath. But the new covenant doesn't stop there. It continues. How does it continue? God tells Jeremiah, it's written on the hearts of the people. They will know God personally. And so God enables, or Christ's sacrifice enables mankind to know God on a personal level where the law is written on their hearts. How is that possible? Because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. So I no longer have to go to a priest to say, hey, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, which we kind of do in another tradition. Like, we don't have to do that anymore. I now have God the Father, and I have Jesus. And so when I go to Jesus and I begin to plead my case, he mediates for me, he pleads my case for me before the throne of heaven, and God hears my heart's cry. He's the mediator. It doesn't depend on keeping an Old Testament law. We don't have to do that any longer. Christ has fulfilled the law. Okay? It's all about faith. And one more thing I want to add to the cup. And, and this is not part of the Passover meal. This is a little extra I'm going to throw in there. But it is very well connected to the new covenant that Jesus talks about that he's instituting from Jeremiah. Okay? First century times, when you had a marriage proposal in a Jewish household, you, you, know, you didn't go to Zales and get your diamond ring. You just didn't do that kind of thing. So you, you'd, as a man, you'd walk into your, the, the, the girl's home. You'd have a meeting with her father. Here's, here's this bridal contract. Let's talk about it for a second. You begin to talk about the contract and the bridal price. And the bridal price could be livestock or money or something of value that you had to bring to the table, which we still do today. I mean, those diamond rings don't grow on trees. <laughs> so there's, there's some kind of price you're putting down there, right? But nevertheless, like you, would, you would get there and, and have this discussion and... And, and there'd be a cup of wine on the table. Now, if, if the parties agreed to it, they'd all drink from this cup. However, the men wouldn't make a decision without the woman, believe it or not. We don't think about that because we think of ancient history. We think, oh, yeah, chauvinistic, whatever. Well, the girl could come in, and she also could look over the contract, too. And she could see what it said. And not only did your father has to agree to it, she had to agree to it. And she would drink from the cup as well. And once they drank from that cup of wine, here's what the, 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 the man would do. He would say something to this effect. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to my parents' house, and I'm going to begin, I'm going I'm to make us a home. I'm going to build us a place. Maybe it's another room. Maybe it's an addition to the home. But he would go and begin to prepare a place for them at his parents' home. Now, from that point forward, she has to be ready because she doesn't know when he's going to come back. At some point when he's finished, he'll come back. So from that day forward, she has to be ready for him to return because that's when the celebration will begin, the, the wedding will start. And when he's finished, he has groomsmen who are runners who run through the streets and they shout that the groom is coming. The groom is coming. And they get to the, uh, the girl's house and the groom shows up and he takes her and they go away back to the home that he had prepared for them. Now some of you are here and you've already followed me with this because you know your Bible pretty well. And you're like, this sounds super familiar, Pastor. It should, because it's the same description that Jesus gives to talk about him returning for us. Look at John 14, chapter 2. 
There's more than enough room in my father's house. And if it were not so, but I told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that what? You will always be with me where I am. Scripture often compares God's love for his people as a husband's love for his wife. This is not just a New Testament thing that depicts God as you know, the groom and his people as, as the bride. Go back to the Old Testament. What the Lord, in the passage we read with Jeremiah, the Lord tells Jeremiah, he describes that relationship as a husband has for his wife. In Ezekiel, God describes finding Judah and Israel. Vivid imagery. Two orphan little babies, and God brings them in, and he cares for them, and he makes sure they have all they need. And when they get of the age where they can marry, God gives them the clothes they need, the jewelry, all the expensive things, because they're his people, and he is theirs. And then he says, but you prostituted yourself by doing what? By chasing Moloch and Baal and Ashtoreth and chasing all these different gods. And it broke his heart. So even in the Old Testament, there is that imagery of God being the groom and his people being the bride. It's not a New Testament thing. In effect, when you are accepting this new covenant that Christ has, it's almost like you're accepting the proposal, a contract, that can be best summed up in the words of Micah, Micah 6, 8. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I think that's the description of what God asks of us. You're going to follow me? Here's what I want you to do, right here. This is it. What's your bridal price? Well, Paul outlines it. 1 Corinthians 6.20. When you say yes to Jesus, you're no longer your own. You know what Paul says? You were bought with a price. What's the price? The blood of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice. When you accept this proposal and decide to follow Jesus, you have to understand this is a commitment which you're not just doing flippantly on a whim. This is something that should be thought through before you do it. Because it needs to be final. You're committing yourself to someone who gave everything for you. He instituted this new covenant to uh, allow you personal access to God. His body was broken, his blood was spilled so you could spend eternity in the place of life instead of death. We don't just say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus because it just feels like it's the right thing to do. We, we really think about this before you commit. I said I had a theory on one of the, the cups of wine. Was it the third cup? Was it the fourth cup? There's actually five. Five cups of wine are set out. The fifth cup that gets set out is the cup for Elijah. So why they do that? Because tradition says that as you near the end time, Elijah will appear, drink from this cup, and announce the coming of the Lord. This cup symbolized future redemption in the kingdom of God. Notice the words that Christ says to his followers, Matthew 26, 29. He says this, 
Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, I'm probably in the minority on this. Don't take this as gospel, okay? But I lean a little bit towards Jesus drinking from this fifth cup. And the reason I do that is he's announcing, he's been announcing in different ways, but he's announcing, I am the Messiah. I'm here. What about Elijah? Elijah's already been here. He, he says that John the Baptist was Elijah. He was going out and was preparing. Hey, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Get ready, get ready, get ready. He's the one who was in the desert that you went out to see, Jesus says, right? He's, he's, he's the forerunner. And he's telling his disciples in a way that they don't understand just yet, I'm here. And with me comes the kingdom of God. And I'm not going to drink from this cup any, uh, any longer. It's not going to happen until we're together in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. When that day comes, I'll drink again. Guys, come on up. When we observe communion, it is a ritual, yes. But it is not simply just a ritual, void of meaning and understanding. The bread means something. The pieces that fell into the dish mean something. The, the cup of wine means something, okay? It, it signifies the blood being shed for your sake and my sake. So we get closer to God so that our sin can be cared for once and for all and dealt with. When you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're proclaiming. To proclaim means to what? It means to let people know, to shout it out. You are proclaiming by word, by your life, proclaiming by your actions that you are living for the Lord until he comes again. You belong to him. You're saying yes to this proposal, man, to this price that Christ paid for you. Communion is an immensely deep and passionate response to the great love that Christ showed for us. It is not something we just do and then walk out the door. There's a lot of heart and soul that goes into this. In a moment, we're, we're going to take communion. Before we do that, I, I think we should have a little bit of time of reflection. I'd begin to ask you now, just kind of search your heart. Lord, how am I before you today? Where's my heart at? Do I have some things I should take care of? Holy Spirit, there's some convictions that you're bringing to my attention. And right now, I just begin to say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for those sins. Forgive me for the things that I've done wrong. Just begin to have that moment with the Lord. But perhaps you're here today and, and you say, Pastor, I, I'll be honest with you. Like, I'm listening to all this, but I'm not a follower of Jesus. Let me just say this very clearly. And, and, and I'm... I'm saying it for a reason. You cannot participate in communion this morning if, if that's you and you say, I'm not a follower of Christ. And the reason for that is not because we're singling you out. We're not doing that. In fact, we've all been, those of us who are Christians, we've all been where you're at. Because at some point, we were where you're at trying to figure out, is, am I going to follow God or not? But it's because of the intimacy that communion brings. Because of what communion signifies. And the act that we're agreeing to, the 
scripture really limits this to those who said yes in Christ. And so nobody here, if you don't take communion, God is telling you nobody here is going to call you out. Oh, look at that guy. Like, no one's going to do that. We've been where you're at. And we, we know what it's like to be there. In fact, we'll, we'll come alongside and support you. Let's keep praying for you. What questions you got? We'll walk with you. But maybe you are here and you're not sure about your walk with the Lord. And he said, Pastor, after listening to all of this, I'm in. I want to do this. I, I want to follow Christ. I want to make that choice. What do I do? Well, to do that, and, and once you say this prayer, you can take communion because you'll, you'll be part of the body of Christ. But to do that, you say a prayer that makes Jesus your Lord and Savior. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just I'm going to model that prayer for you. Say it in your own words, but I'll model it for you. And, and you can say it out loud if you want to, but you don't have to. And when we finish this prayer, you'll be a follower of Christ and you'll be able to participate in communion with us here in just a moment. But understand this, you know, blood is, is the lifeline of every being, right? And Jesus, he, he, his blood gives us life. His blood covers us of our sin, our wrong. And for those of us in the room who've already said that yes to him, we belong to him. Man, you know, when you, when you accept Christ, he changes you. Can't you look back at what you used to be like before? I was this person before, and I had this issue, and I had that. But when I said yes to Christ, maybe it changed overnight. Maybe it changed over time, but you were not. You're not the same person today. I know I'm not the same person today than when I was when I said yes. That blood of Jesus, man, it can make, it can make the most hardened, apathetic hearts turn upside down for him. You were bought with a price, and it was a heavy price. We commemorate. We also remember the legacy that Christ left for us of hope, of freedom, of forgiveness, of life. Bow your heads, close your eyes if you would. If you're a believer this morning, just begin praying right now. Begin searching your heart. Lord, what is there? You know, I want, I want to take communion in a worthy manner. So God, what is there that I should, I should get rid of? What is there, Lord, that I should take care of? If you're here today and you're not a believer this morning, but you're ready to make that next step and say, Pastor, I want to follow Jesus. I want you to repeat this prayer in your own words, out loud or to yourself, doesn't matter. But it's going to go like this. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me for the wrongs that I've done. I know, God, that I've done things I'm not proud of. They, they violate your standards, Lord, and, and I'm here today to say that I need you. I need you. I need you to save me. I can't save myself. I need you to save me. Cleanse me. God, give me this new start in my life, this brand new start that I need. And Lord, don't just save me, but, but lead me, guide me. I don't want to just make you Savior. I want to make you Lord of my life. And so I'm going to commit myself from this day forward to following after you. I'll go where you tell me to go. I'll do what you call me to do. I want to recognize today that my life is not my own. I'm putting it in your hands. And it 
belongs to you. From this day forward, I'm committing myself to saying yes to Jesus, to following you and serving you and living for you for the rest of my life. God, I thank you for those who've said yes today. I thank you for those who've already said yes. For those who aren't sure yet, we pray for them as well. That there will be a day where they say, I'm a committed follower of Jesus. Lord, may our hearts be in alignment with you in all that we do. May we remember the why behind this act of communion. May it never be an empty ritual, but may it have full vigor and life and meaning when we participate in this form of worship. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.